0: Good afternoon, I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to the show. This afternoon, Andrea Mandel-Campbell joins us. Her book, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, Rescuing Canadian Business from the Suds of Global Obscurity.
1: Short story there is that nobody drinks Molson, except for Canadians. I use Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson as a metaphor for... What I saw as a pattern across industries and across the country, if we were going to have a global champion, Molson, I argue, would be that global champion. If there was going to be, it seems to me, a company and a brand and a product that we could have really sold around the world and kind of captured people's imagination, I argue that it would have been beer. We ended up being, in fact, the only brewing country in the world that does not have a global brand.
0: This afternoon, Andrea Mandel Campbell, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, right now on Brent Holland. Folks, we are speaking with Andrea Mandel Campbell, her book, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, Rescuing Canadian Business from the Suds of Global Obscurity. Now, I have a question to ask you right away about business in Canada. What Mm -hmm. in the hell is the matter with us?
1: That's a loaded question. <laughs> what is wrong with us? It's a simple but very complex question. There's good and bad things, and I think what the book is trying to say is that we need to identify our shortcomings, embrace our strengths, and do a better job of getting out there and showing the world that we do have things that people want to buy. I think the challenge for Canadians is that, very simply, life has been good for a long time time. And in fact, you know, what's happening in Sudbury is a perfect example of life being good for a very long time. And then globalization happens, and you realize that things are changing. And the question is, we've been kind of soothed into thinking that we can get along based on a very wealthy resource economy. If you think about the fact that Canada is a huge piece of geography, amazing amount of wealth, not a lot of people. So in some ways, you haven't had to do a lot to live pretty well, and globalization kind of changes that, and it forces us to have to compete in a manner different than we have in the past, and that, I think, is the big challenge that Canadians have going forward.
0: Without question. There's a great quote in the book that I think puts it all into perspective, and that's by Pierre Allaire. And Pierre Allaire, folks, is a Canadian veteran of international markets, and he stated, if Canada were beside Bosnia instead of the United States... We'd all be bankrupt. (laughs) I think it's absolutely bang on. As you know, I have my own music business. I compose music for television and film. And I'll Mm -hmm. tell everybody listening right now, because the show syndicated coast to coast to coast. I do a lot better outside of Canada than I ever do in Canada. And that pisses me off. No end. Like I compose music for NASA, ABC, all the A's and all the B's and all the C's in the States. Very little in Canada. There's something about the stigma when I make a cold phone call to a Canadian. I get a wall. I get, what do you want from me? When I make a cold phone call to the States, I get, what can you do for me? And that's a significant difference.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is what you're describing is something that I found very often in the many interviews that I did with people across Canada. And even more importantly, I interviewed a lot of people internationally who work with Canadians, whether they were in Brazil or in Mexico or in Europe or in China, and asked them that same question of, what's your impression of having to do business? business with Canadians. And many of them often describe a very similar kind of reaction. Or if Canadians were approaching them to do business, they had a very difficult time gauging exactly what the Canadians were trying to sell them because they weren't kind of aggressive in the way that, let's say, an American would be in selling you something. We are much more reluctant to embrace revolutionary change than the United States does. American companies uh, are looking to make their company more productive. They're willing to Completely revolutionize it and got it start from scratch with and invest in new technology, whereas Canadians tend to be very incremental in the changes they will implement. We are fearful of change, and part of it, I think, you know, we can attribute to geography and the harshness of our climate. On one hand, at the same time, being beside a country like the United States that is so overwhelming in many ways and has shaped our nature, I think, in terms of being afraid to compete against that and being afraid of never being able to measure up in some ways. Our fallback position has always been a defensive one. I think we have much more of a defensive position and it's much more of protect what we have because we're fearful of losing what we have than thinking about the opportunities we gain by opening ourselves up.
0: By the way, folks, we're speaking with Andrea Mandel Campbell. Her book is Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, Rescuing Canadian Business from the Suds of Global Obscurity. can be gotten at www.brenthollandshow.com website. Click on the book cover. That'll take you right to chapters and to go online. You can order it from the comfort of your own home. There's another great quote in here. Canada does not have, nor has it ever had, a single global brand. I want to tell you, though, I do take issue to this. We do have Mounties and Moose. (laughs)
1: Well, and things have changed. I mean, you know, when the book came out... I'm teasing you. Yeah. (laughs) But at the time of writing, what was striking to me is that a country like Canada, part of the G7, one of the world's wealthiest countries, and we, we didn't have a single global brand in the top 100 ranking, nor had we ever, which was, I think, unique to a country of our wealth and size. There was no other country like that. And if you actually see, there's a lot of countries, small countries like Finland, or Sweden or Korea that are oftentimes much smaller, but have these global brands like a Nokia or like a IKEA or an H&M or something like that. And I find that striking. And people say, well, that's because we rely so heavily on our resource base and therefore very hard to brand that. And there is some truth to that. But if you were to go back in the history of Finland and Sweden, you would see that these were countries that were largely based on resources. Finland, even though it has as a global champion now. This is a country that relies on forestry for a huge proportion of its GDP. But what it's done with that resource is, like we do in Canada, they have a highly technologically advanced, value-added forestry industry that custom sizes uh, lumber for all kinds of applications, furniture, you name it. All the, the equipment that goes into the forestry sector, they dominate that. Whereas in Canada, we don't have a single company. Really, of any size that let's say produces technology for the sector, and we certainly don't have a lot of value added at all. So, we've decided that we would, you know, cut it down, dig it up, and sell it like that, and let other people do the value adding, which includes branding, and branding is part mm-hmm. of value adding.
0: In the book, I and I've noticed this over my years in business also Canada seems to lack, in general, vision, and I see that time and time again. And you mentioned this in the book, actually, where people would rather take off at five o'clock and go fishing or work for a union for a living instead of becoming an entrepreneur. And again, it comes back to our psyche. And I don't understand where it is in our psyche where it says that we have to be subservient and not get out there and be competitive uncertainly, unless it's hockey, of course, then we're really competitive mm-hmm. on a global sphere. I think of beer. Let's talk about beer. Of course, that's the title of your book, which is Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. Andrea Mandel-Campbell is our guest. Can we talk about beer for a second and Molson? You see, I always thought Molson was renowned across the world because everybody drinks Molson. Apparently, that's not the case, and it comes back to missed opportunities.
1: Short story there is that nobody drinks Molson except for Canadians. I use Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson as a metaphor for what I saw as a pattern across industries and across the country. If we were going to have a global champion, Molson, I argue, would be that global champion. You know, we have a reputation internationally as being one of the world's beer countries. We have this culture for drinking beer. We consider ourselves good at making beer. We think we have great beer in this country. We have prime ingredients for it. Barley, we are one of the world's largest producers of barley. More fresh water than almost anywhere I'm. And we have the company, Molson which is actually the oldest brewery in North America. This is one of Canada's most powerful companies. This was a a company that owned banks and actually issued its own currency. So if there was going to be, it seems to me, a company and a brand and a product that we could have really sold around the world and kind of captured people's imagination, I argue that it would have been beer. And instead of that, we ended up being in fact the only brewing country in the world that does not have a global brand. Wherever you go whether it's to Belgium or to Australia or to Mexico or to Brazil, all these countries have the global brands that people recognize and, and it's hugely ironic because if you think about Mexico, I mean, they import their barley from Canada. They certainly don't have fresh water and Nevertheless, they've managed to capture the world's imagination with a brand like Corona, which is not a particularly good beer. And even in Mexico, it's kind of considered a second-rate beer. But not only have they managed to make it one of the most popular brands in the world, but, but actually to get people to go through an entire ritual of, of using a lime and the whole thing. It's striking to me that they've been able to do that successfully, and somehow we failed on our end to be able to capture that, you know, the world's mm. imagination. Of course, the big question is is what.
0: Folks, we're speaking with Andrea Mandel-Campbell, the book Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. Just go to the www.brenthollandshow.com website. Click on the book cover. As always, we'll take you to chapters and you go online. Now, you and I are both not fans of Canadian government grants. Well, I think it just breeds complacency and laziness. And I've seen this so often where major producers end up getting grants and then they stop becoming a competitive business and then their next venture is to get the grant for the following year and this mm-hmm. repeats itself over and over and over and I think it takes away competitive edge it also takes away vision where they're not hungry anymore and I think that's a big problem too I feel Canada has so much to offer we're not living up to expectations.
1: What is interesting is if you were to look at the areas where there is the most government regulation, and that's in everything from the media to telecommunications to actually the beer industry, I mean, it was striking for me to see that those sectors where you have the most amount of regulation and implicit subsidies. It's not necessarily that people are handing out uh, checks, but they're putting a fence around Canadian companies. They're limiting ownership to only Canadians. They're not allowing in foreign competitions. Whatever it is, this definitely stymies the hunger of these companies to go out and compete. And if we were to go back to beer, that would be a perfect example of this. In most provinces in the country, you have a provincial board that kind of controls where your liquor is sold and Who's selling it? I ask this to people all the time. I say, can you tell me the most profitable beer market in the world? When I give talks, I'll ask that question. People will always say Japan or Germany or something like that. Never once has anybody guessed that, in fact, it's Ontario is the most profitable beer market in the world and the reason it is is because a hundred years ago the provincial government gave Molson and Labatt the retail monopoly on selling beer in the province in other words they own something called the beer store which is the only place in the province aside from if you go to the provincial liquor board where mostly liquors are sold it's the only place in Ontario essentially where you can buy beer and they own that and they control that mm-hmm. and so basically they own and control the the only point of distribution for beer. And what that's ended up doing is the way that they've competed traditionally up until very, very recently is they spent all their time trying to keep other beer brands from getting into the store, from being able to sell their product there. So basically how they competed was employing lawyers to erect barriers to competition coming into the store. At the same time, it meant that they saved hundreds of millions of dollars every year in any kind of distribution cost. So they didn't have to learn how to distribute their product. And of course, the cost to that is is that while on the one hand, they it made them hugely profitable. On the other hand, it basically, number one, killed any incentive for them to think about expanding globally, and number two, they didn't have the skills to do it because They didn't know how to compete in markets where they didn't really control the distribution of countries like Brazil where where Molson went into and ended up four years later having to merge with Coors because they ventured in there and, and had their lunch taken away from them.
0: And that's a perfect segue into my next point. And I'm going to quote again from the book. The high taxes, whether on business or personal income, mean there is little incentive to work longer hours or to take a risk When an individual would do just as well working nine to five as a bus driver. And to follow that up, on the next page, it says, but while we seem to focus on churning out workers, in other words, union folks, what about the business leaders? Is that all we're capable of, is becoming union workers? Let's talk about education.
1: I mean, education is part of it. Somebody said it to me really well once, Canadians are great as the grease in the wheels. This was an Italian gentleman who I'd met, and he did international deals all the time. And I was asking him how often he came across Canadian leaders, because what had struck me, for example, let's take the mining sector uh, because, you know, we're considered one of the leaders in the world in, in the mining industry. What's interesting is all the big mining companies that you can think of, they're run by Americans, South Africans, Australians, but you never actually see Canadians running the biggest companies in the world. And it struck me because we have such a long history and tradition of mining in this country. Going back to what this Italian man was saying to me, we're very good at managing. We're good at middle management we're good at rolling out people who are good at making a team work together for example so it's not just union people necessarily what we tend to produce are people who either are good at a managerial level to a certain level or workers and the answer to that is a very complex one because if you were to look at our political leaders they very rarely fire true leadership and, and for some reason That has been a shortcoming of Canadians, and I think we feel more comfortable kind of managing at lower levels. And it's not very often that you see a breakout leader who inspires people, and I don't know. Part of that, I think, has to do with ambition, and part of that has to do with the culture of the country.
0: I find in my own life, like I said before, when I approach a Canadian, it's almost... I won't say I'm being ostracized, but it's like, how dare you think you're as good as an American? Or how dare you think you're as good as somebody on an international level? You're a Canadian. You're one of my neighbors. It's like we have this built-in inferiority complex. We do have a can-do attitude here in Canada. But it tends to mainly come from those that have come into the country from outside, immigrants.
1: I mean, it makes sense if you really think about it. A lot of the most successful, you would find that there's an inordinate number of people who've come in, and, and the ones that have made a go of things internationally, who have, who have tended to be successful, have been people who have emigrated to this country from somewhere else, whether that's Peter Monk or Thomas Bada or you know, the Massey family, I mean, you know, who immig- who were came from the United States. Um, there's definitely a history of that, and, and, and it comes from, I think, well, if you look at the history of some of these people, they've come from, you know, horrible circumstances, and they have a different um, survivor's instinct. At the same time, they also... I think the difference being is they know what's out there and they know the opportunities. And so they come to Canada, they see this amazingly stable country where it's easy in many ways to start a business. And so they say, this is the perfect launching point from which to, to build a global company because uh, you've got a great country with great institutions, great rule of law, uh, and they have come from places that are you know, terribly difficult. And so for them it's easy and they know what the world has to offer, whereas oftentimes native-born Canadians who are not necessarily aware of the great opportunity out there, and, and they do t- tend to shortchange themselves and they say, well, what is, you know, what is little old me here in Canada? who's going to want to buy, I mean this has traditionally been the case and I'm, I'm hoping it's changing to um, want to buy a Canadian product and I think part of the problem and why they've thought that is because in the past in Canada there hasn't been as I mentioned a global brand in the top 100 and some people might say well so what but what it is is there's a psychological element to that when you see somebody else a Canadian succeeding you say, well, then I can do that, too. It's, it's very important to have role models, actually. Percent, yep. And um, if, if people haven't seen a Canadian brand succeed globally, what, what would make them believe that one could? And now that we're starting to see the success of RIM, all of a sudden we realize that, in fact, we can do this. Um, and I think it's imbuing people with, a new sense of confidence that, yes, in fact, we can uh, create, um, you know, a revolutionary product out of Waterloo, Ontario that everyone around the world wants to have. And I think that hopefully these things will start to change. And another example like uh, Cirque du Soleil, I mean, there are some examples of, of companies that are changing things, but we have to, you know, we're talking about a lot of decades where, we didn't have those kind of companies you know Canada is still a young country in many ways and and we are a country of of immigrants so I'm thinking you know the face of the country is changing and and we are seeing you know a lot of new people who are very ambitious and and very confident and um, I'm thinking and hoping that you know uh, these new generations will will change Uh, the direction of of where we go.
0: You know, I look back at the history of the country, and I often wonder if the people that were here now were around back then, if we would even have a country, or if we would have just been absorbed into the United States. One of the things that unified us right in the very beginning, of course, was the railway. Now, that took a lot of balls, a lot of chutzpah to put that together. Then you look at the St. Lawrence Seaway and all the things of that nature, a big project. I'm heading in the direction of the Arrow. For those of you that aren't familiar with the story of the Arrow, the Arrow was around middle 50s, It was an airplane that was Canadian-made, Canadian-designed. It was really at the top of its class. It was on the technological edge. There was a change in government, Diefenbaker canned the arrow. It was this beautiful, beautiful airplane that was going to be a defense wonder. There was sales for it internationally, etc. A lot of people look back now at that seminal moment in our history, that cancellation of that big project, and say, that's when we lost it.
1: Look at a company like Bombardier, which gets a lot of flack for corporate handouts. But having said that, it is the world's largest train maker. What it has managed to accomplish, as well as on the aviation side, number three, I think, in the world, would seem to me that we already have champion in that regard and I think what's kind of ironically Canadian is that we're always decrying the fact that we don't have a lot of champions and yet we complain that the company gets a lot of corporate pork barreling so what do we want and do we understand where government and you know the business world and how they can be mutually supportive. That, to me, is the bigger challenge.
0: Folks, the book, Why Mexicans Don't Drink, Molson Rescuing Canadian Business from the Suds of Global Obscurity. Our guest, Andrea Mandel Campbell, www.brent.com hollandshow.com, click on the book cover, take it right to Chapters Indigo Online. I want to continue with that line of thought. It seems to me there's an emerging technology right now that Canada could be at the forefront of, and that is the green technology industry working in tandem and in harmony with the green industry, reducing our carbon Mm -hmm. footprint. I see that all the time here in Sudbury. They have re-greened everything. As of late, I see them spraying this green stuff everywhere, and it turns into grass. I call it liquid grass, not the kind you smoke, guys. The other kind that you can, that you can have a picnic on. Is there any other emerging technologies, you know, Canada Arm, those type of things that we can capitalize
1: on. Green technology is a great example. But the issue is, though, I mean, the whole world is going to be competing with trying to get into the green technology business. It's interesting because I can remember when I used to live in Latin America back in the 90s, Canada was trying to sell itself as a green technology leader. Back then, there was all kinds of switch treatment and whatnot, and all these countries needed that kind of thing, and, and they still do. So I think the potential is there. As I say, it's a matter of new technology and mobile phones. The issue is going to be whether we go from doing it locally to become what I think is necessarily important, is to become you know globally successful at it. That remains to be seen because as I say, there's there's going to be a lot of competition and even though we've talked about this for a long time, I don't know how far we've gone in in actually kind of doing more than talking and actually, you know, um, um, you know fulfilling that potential.
0: Folks, our guest today, Andrea Mendel Campbell, the book Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson. Now, you're a woman. You're incredibly right. You would be a strong, you know, In Canada, folks, even though there's more women than men in Canada, 51 to 49%, yet in government, there's only 25% of women represented. You're a bright woman. You're articulate. You have strong business sense ideas, something that is, I feel, badly lacking in government. Any political aspirations?
1: (laughs) That's funny that you asked me that question, because I've been approached on a number of occasions. Um, And? what I learned after I wrote the book you know I was when I did research for this book and you dig into um, the way some government policy especially in the agriculture sector and you're just appalled and you think this is just so blatantly wrong on so many levels and how can people in government continue this when they know that it's doing long term damage to the country and what I found fascinating is in private discussions with government ministers they knew perfectly well how bad some policies were and how destructive they were. But they also knew that even though it needed to change, they weren't going to get reelected trying to change them. And I don't know, um, coming from where I come from, whether I'd be able to do a job like that, where I was perpetuating something that I thought was not good for the country, but couldn't do anything about it because the political reality was something different.
0: I understand that. But a woman of your intelligence... And your vision, I think, needs to be in a place where they can actually do some change and make a difference. I think the only way to change things is from within the system. I'm not so sure it can be changed from the outside.
1: If I change my mind, I'll be calling you. <laughs> <Okay>.
0: <laughs> We've got to start to wrap up now. You're virtually speaking to every single university student, college-age student in the country from coast to coast to coast. What would you say to them?
1: I would say three things. I would say, number one... Challenge assumptions that you have about how you think Canada is, how you think it works. Number two, I would say get your head a little bit around how business works, how money works, how the market works, how the economy works. The one thing that I find quite startling in general is the sense that somehow business and the economy is almost like an elective course that you could take, something that is separate from the rest of the world. We live our day-to-day lives, and then there's something called business and the economy. It is the foundation of everything. Having a fundamental understanding and appreciation of that, I think, is key, no matter what you decide to do with your life. The third thing I'd say is travel. Travel, get out, to see the world have an understanding of where Canada fits in. Those would be the three
0: things I'd say. Folks, that was Andrea Mandel Campbell. Terrific book. You will really enjoy this book, Why Mexicans Don't Drink Molson, Rescuing Canadian Business from the Suds of Global Obscurity. I want to thank Andrea Mandel Campbell for coming on the show this afternoon and looking at business from a macro perspective. Coming up on the Brent Holland Show, Theo Fleury lived every Canadian kid's dream. Grew up in a small town, made it to the NHL, had an exemplary career. Captain of the Calgary Flames, gold medal winner with Team Canada at the Olympics. But there was a darker side to this story. A side of sexual abuse, of substance abuse, and self-abuse. First, I want to talk about that day with the gun. And the bullet.
1: Well, I don't really remember going to the pawn shop, but I do remember that moment of truth when I had the gun loaded and the barrel in my mouth. You know, that was the moment of truth. And seconds before I was getting ready to pull the trigger, something clicked in my head that said, you've never quit anything in your life. Why are you doing this now?
0: As always, you can reach me at brenthollandshow at gmail.com. For Carrie Graham, who edited this show, and Carrie Jones, who helped produce it. I'm Brent Holland. Thanks for listening. See you next time.